Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Louise and I went to back when we lived in Atlanta in Georgia. This was like in the late in the 1980s. I forget which election cycle it was. But Pat Buchanan was running for president It was in the Republican primary and he was grabbing some traction. And we took our kids. Our youngest was uh, she was small enough that she sat on my shoulders. I think she was maybe two. And we took our kids to this, and before we went, we said, you know, what you're going to probably see here, maybe nothing, or this may be the kind of rally that you would have seen in Germany in 1932. And so I'd just like to show it to you. And sure enough, we got in there, they locked the doors, or they made it very difficult to get in or out. The security was bikers and skinheads with swastikas. The guy who introduced Pat Buchanan went on a long rant about the Jewish bankers controlling the world. Pat Buchanan continued that, but instead of saying Jewish bankers, he kept using the phrase, those people. I mean, there's a long province to this, right? This idea that people who are not, quote, us, are the ones coming to get us. And using that, using us and them, to essentially instill fear in people. This is one of the triggers that is wired into us as mammals. And certainly as primates, we see this in other primate populations, chimpanzee troops will go to genocidal war with each other. It was Jane Goodall who documented this. And this was literally one troop that had previously split into two. So this is wired into us. We have to realize that war is not an aberration. It's an expression of something that's deep in our genetic code that at some point in time was some kind of a survival advantage for our species. But right now, with 7 billion people on the planet, well, you know, I'd say actually not just right now, but for at least the last 10,000 years, has not been so useful to us, particularly when you combine it with the agricultural revolution and technology. Go back and read Dan Quinn's book, Ishmael, if you want to know what I'm talking about there. So we're wired to be freaked out about the other. We're wired to react to the other in ways that include violence. In fact, we're wired to even kill the other if we feel genuinely threatened or to cheer it on as we do as we watch the bombing of cities in the Middle East, for example. In Iraq and Afghanistan, we were all, yeah, drop those bombs. And, you know, absolutely innocent people were being slaughtered as George W. Bush declared two unnecessary and illegal wars in the Middle East, both of them based on lies. Afghanistan was not responsible for Osama bin Laden. And in fact, they offered to arrest him and turn him over to a third country. And George W. Bush said, no, I'd rather have a war. I mean, you know, keep in mind, he told his biographer, Mickey Herskowitz in 1999, that if he became president, he was going to have a war. And it wasn't going to be a short war like his daddy had. He was going to have a long war because that's how you get reelected. And Donald Trump was paying careful attention. He's getting ready for his war in Venezuela. You mark my words. So into this room, this basement with two inches of gasoline on the floor, right? Standing in gasoline up to our ankles, holding a matchbook, into this room steps Representative Steve King of Iowa with an online meme, with an internet meme, with a picture made up of two cartoon characters that look like two human beings, and they're made up of, of blocks that are essentially the states, the red states and the blue states. 
So you got a red person and a blue person, and they're punching each other. And he comes out with this meme that says there's eight trillion bullets out there on one side. And who's going to win the Civil War? Civil War? Really? This is Steve King, Congressman Steve King, who used to come on this program. He's been unwilling to for some years now. I, yeah, I wonder why. Who is just like this unrepentant, open racist, suggesting that we should have a civil war in the United States and that the side that has the most guns is going to win. This is absolutely unhealthy. You know, a trillion bullets is a lot of death. And pointing out that one side is well-armed while the other side isn't, pointing that out to deranged people, like the terrorists who shot up Christchurch, New Zealand, or the hate-filled bigots who've been murdering people in the United States for years, just pointing that out to them. Some among them are going to take that as a call to arms. You know, we've already suffered one brutal civil war. And a lot of people died. 600,000 people died in that civil war. And what happened after the civil war? Well, there were still a bunch of people in the House of Representatives who thought the Confederacy was just a fine thing. And how did the House of Representatives deal with them? These people who were still willing to fight the Civil War? They expelled them. I'm calling on Nancy Pelosi and the leadership of the Democratic Party in the U.S. House of Representatives, since they control the House, to begin expulsion hearings. To begin hearings to determine whether Steve King should be expelled from the U.S. House of Representatives for promoting a civil war. You think what Ilan Omar said was a bad thing? This is mind-boggling. A civil war in the United States encouraging Americans to take up weapons against other Americans? I mean, how does it get worse than this? And this is a, a Republican that the rest of the Republicans are saying, well, yeah, he's here. I mean, we're kind of embarrassed by him, but we you know we kind of agree with him. Come on, guys. In fact, it shouldn't even be Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic leadership saying it's time to expel Steve King from the U.S. House of Representatives. It should be the Republicans. If they have any courage, if they have any belief in the, in the ideals of this country, they should be calling for this. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Hell, if they have any understanding of the horrors of a civil war, they should be calling on Steve King to be expelled. On the line with us is a writer for the New York Times, Wajahat Ali. Uh, if I'm pronouncing that right, sir? That was very impressive. You deserve a Kit Kat for saying it properly. <laughs> okay, thank you. The website is Wajahat Ali, W-A-J-A-H-A-T-A-L-I. Excuse me, that's the, at, the Twitter handle, at Wajahat Ali. Of course, you can read his article, which is just absolutely brilliant. Uh, it's titled The Roots of the Christchurch Massacre over at the, the New York Times. It was published last Friday, I believe. First of all, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us today. I caught a little bit of you on TV this morning and thought, this guy really has clarified in his mind and through his work and research exactly what's going on here from Christchurch, New Zealand to the United States. Can you give us a, a summary of your understanding of what's actually going on? Sure, and thanks for having me on your show. Uh, it's a globalized ideology of hate, which anchors these disparate white power and white nationalist movements. The ideology is white supremacy. The ideology states that white people, or white civilization, whatever that means, is inherently superior to all other inferior civilizations and individuals and have to remain on top. One of their main fears, Tom, is something called the Great Replacement Theory. And if you're paying attention, that was the name of the manifesto written by the man who killed 50 people in New Zealand, the domestic terrorist. He called it the Great Replacement. Right. Another word for the Great Replacement is white genocide. What this says is that there's a global conspiracy headed by, quote-unquote, the Jews, who are the head and brains of the cabal. And what they're trying to do is use their wealth and money to bring in foreigners, invaders, immigrants, black people, Muslims, to overtake and weaken the white man so that the white man will be subordinated. Now, if you're paying attention, 
and read the manifesto of the domestic terrorist in New Zealand. He said he wanted to punish the invaders, he used the word several times, and take revenge against who? The Muslims. If that is familiar to you, it's because in October, Robert Bowers walked into a uh, synagogue in Pittsburgh, Tree of Life, and shot and killed 11 people. He said that he wanted to punish the invaders, those individuals helping bring in refugees, and he was going to get them before they got us. Specifically, on a right-wing social media site, Gab, he retweeted a post that said, we have to punish the evil, filthy Jews for bringing in the evil, filthy Muslims. Now, how is Trump connected? Trump might not be a white supremacist, Tom, but he has no problem promoting white supremacist conspiracy theories, just like the one I mentioned. In October, midterm elections, you can't gaslight us. It just happened. He tripled down on one talking point and one talking point only. What was that? I don't recall. The caravan. Oh, yeah. The caravan. This was when he was sitting on top of a pretty robust economy. There was job growth. But him and Fox News went all in in that there is an invasion, he used the word multiple times, a caravan of rapists and criminals and Middle Eastern suspects and Mexicans that are invading America. What he also tweeted out was the George Soros conspiracy theory. George Soros is a Jewish-Hungarian-American billionaire that is allegedly funding the caravan. That was promoted by Republican leadership. That is a conspiracy theory that is part and parcel of the Great Replacement that has emerged directly from white supremacist infrastructure and used in Europe. And if you look at the uh, terrorists' manifesto, he refers to Donald Trump. What does he say? Trump is a renewed symbol of white pride, and he shares a common purpose. Why would a domestic terrorist who walks into a mosque and kills 50 people share a common purpose with Donald Trump? And there's way more examples, but that's just a taste. Yeah. So, wow. Meanwhile, we've got Andrew Breitbart saying that his big awakening, his conversion was when he discovered cultural Marxism, which has now become a thing on the right. And it apparently tracks back to a small group of Jewish people who emigrated here from Nazi Germany in the late 1930s. And then you've got the guys in Charlottesville chanting, you will not replace us, Jews will not replace us. That's exactly it. The Jews will not replace us. There you go. It's not. It's white supremacists, KKK, and the alt-right who took their tiki torches to Charlottesville, and that's what they were chanting. Now, if you were paying attention, does that sound familiar? Yeah. To what the New Zealand shooter was saying? And, the and then you go back to Anders Breivik, the mass murderer in Norway who killed 70-plus people, uh, children, in fact, children of liberals. It was a, a liberal organization that sponsored the summer camp specifically because he was... Uh, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, he said that the liberals in Norway were in favor of bringing refugees into the country. Yeah, and the shooter in New Zealand was inspired in part by Anders Breivik, who in 2011 left behind a 1,500-page manifesto explaining in detail why he shot and killed 69 mostly teenagers and left a bomb in a federal building killing 77 people. He said that he wanted to punish Europe for being pro-immigrant, for being pro-diversity, and for being pro-Muslim. And he wanted to warn Europe. Right. Anders Breivik also, and I haven't been able to share this on media channels in the last three days, but Anders Breivik left behind that 1,500-page manifesto. He cites, Thomas, in that 1,500-page manifesto, the writings of American Islamophobes. In fact, Mark Sageman, a counterterrorism expert, said that those American Islamophobes, who I'll name in a second, can't be blamed for his actions. But Brevik and them emerged from the same ideological infrastructure. I wrote about all this in 2011 in an investigative report I did called Fear Incorporated, the roots of the Islamophobia network in America, trying to understand where these conspiracy theories like Sharia is a threat to America. That should sound familiar for anyone who's been paying attention to what's happening to Judge Pirro. Where did this come from, right? Mm -hmm. And what, what we traced was it went from the swamp and the right wing to the mainstream discourse specifically through elected officials, think tanks, some funders, grassroots groups, and mainstream media personalities. So something that was fringe 10 years ago was literally uttered by Judge Pirro last week on her show on Fox News to defame Ilhan Omar as being a potential fifth column, a non, if you will, loyal American based on the fact that she's Muslim and wears hijab. And Brevik inspired this New Zealand shooter, Brevik also inspired this Coast Guard who just a couple of weeks ago, Christopher Hassan, we forgot about it because it's, you know, it's Trump. So like there's a new chaos every day. But there was a domestic terrorist who was caught who was stockpiling weapons inspired by Brevik, who wanted to kill as many Muslims and people as possible. And he said he wanted to establish a white state. 
The question we have is, why is Donald Trump so impotent and pathetic in confronting white supremacists? But if it was a Muslim suspect, you know, he tweets tough. Yeah. And that's a question. That's oh, a question he, and, he, and he'd be, and he'd be uh, you know, going nuts on this stuff. The question for me, Waji. You had, call me Waj. Ali, yeah, okay, Waj. The question for me is, what do we do about this? We've got this simple reality of the browning of America and, frankly, Europe and the rest of the world. And you've got some white people who are paranoid about that. You've got others, I would say the majority, who are using that, you know, to exploit other white people, you know, to crank up fear, you know, basically a, a racialized fear. This is not anything new. I mean, you know, Richard Nixon's war on drugs was meta to this. It was about black right. people. The reefer madness of the 1920s was meta to this about Hispanics. You know, we've seen this over and over and over. The Republicans for years used this, uh, you know, black people want to take your jobs, etc. How do we speak to these frightened white people who think that somehow there being a smaller percentage of the population of the United States represents a personal threat to them? That's a very good question. I, I wrote about this in the summer. It's called How to De-Radicalize White People for the New York Review of Books. And you set it up really well is that there is this perceived racial anxiety. That was the main, not the only, but the main motivator for Trump voters, according to every single study that's been done in the past three years, is not economic anxiety, it's racial anxiety. Right. And it's politicians, like you said, who play upon these cultural wars and racial anxieties to pit the white people, the mainstream, against everyone else. Invasion, horde, Mexicans are rapists and criminals, Muslim ban. I mean, look, it's right in front of us. Trump's been doing it. The dog whistles are blowhorns, right, the last three years. Yep. And so what we're witnessing around the world is what I call the death rattle of white supremacy, which has transformed into a death march. I did not say white people, I said white supremacy. It's a, an ideology and a structural superiority that has been put in place in Europe and America since its foundation. And because there are more people of color, and also one other aspect that people never mention, and they should, women, misogyny is critical in the white supremacist movement. They are deeply deeply threatened by empowered women. They this is highly, highly, highly hierarchical and patriarchal. Highly. And so the alt-right, for example, the way they recruit a lot of the alt-right guys are these straight white guys, and they say that the Jews are promoting narratives in Hollywood uh, that are empowering women, and these women are emasculating you. And so what we're witnessing is this feeling of emasculation and weakness, a feeling where they're losing validation and power, which is why the white supremacy narrative it's so powerful, just like the ISIS narrative. It goes to angry, dislocated men and women who feel unmoored, and they find a community, a sense of belonging, a validation in this community, which they find usually online, and it gives them a sense of purpose. And what I always like to remind people is they think they're the heroes, Tom. That's a key thing. They think they're the protagonist oh, yeah. of a global narrative. No, but they we're still diagnosing the, the problem. I mean, how do, how do we speak uh, to them? So, so how we speak to them is the following. You need a top-down approach. First and foremost, you need the President of the United States of America to actually confront it as a problem and call it what it is, domestic terrorism. It's the number one domestic terror threat in America, according to the FBI. Attack it the way he attacks John McCain in the press. I mean that sincerely. So A, top-down leadership, you have to call for what it is, domestic terrorism. B, we have laws on the book that can be enforced to go after them with teeth. Some people say we need more laws. For example, those laws that really attack terrorism are only for those entities that are are foreign, such as ISIS and Al-Qaeda, so mm. give law enforcement the teeth to prosecute it. Number three, top-down, bottom-up education. What's their ideology? How do they operate? How do they mobilize? Education, top-down, to really identify the markers. And, and like build this know, into our schools. Yeah, it, exactly. I mean, because, you know, when I talk to experts who are helping in de-radicalization, they say that a lot of these young men, people miss the signs. People miss it. Do you know how long, though, we have been fighting this? I mean, when when my wife and I were kids, and I mean, literally, when we were in high school, this was in the 1960s, and, and I was in Lansing, she was in East Lansing, Michigan. In my schools, we did not have any kind of education about people of color. There was no, there was nothing. In her school in East Lansing, it's a college town, they had two years of black studies. And she had wow. to read all these, you know, all this stuff that, you know, I grew up being largely ignorant of. And those programs that started in the 60s, I mean, they were coming out of some of the turmoil of the 60s, although, frankly, this was this would have been like 63 to 66. Those are all gone to a large extent. 
as far as I can tell. And that was just a, a very modest effort to acquaint middle-class white people with the struggles of people of color in the United States, the slavery and, and the Native American genocide. Exactly. And you kind of mentioned in your last segment that I was listening to, right, these, these propagandas that we have, this meritocracy, that if you just pull yourself up from the bootstrap in America, like this equal country where, like, you know, anyone can make it, kind of being invisible to the, the hidden hands, the power structures, the privileges, the luck, right? right? And so when you see President Obama be the president, now you see people say, let's just, you know, wash our hands of it. We live in a post-racial society. Racism, that's in the past. Move on. And right. then the rest of us are like, whoa, wait a second. Nope. If anything, it revealed the fissures because the hate groups in America that exploded, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, are the past 10 years post-election of Barack Hussein Obama. And you have to think about it based on what I was talking about in the last segment. What could be more terrifying than a black man, son of a Kenyan Muslim, ascending to the highest office in the land? What could be more triggering, Tom, to people who feel, quote-unquote, racial anxiety? And so this type of education has to go both ways, in empowering education about all the narratives of Americans who got left out. That's us, people of color, including some of the signs about these men who are being radicalized online. And finally, the on- oh, two last things. Online, social media has a duty and responsibility because this ideological infrastructure thrives online. They recruit online, they radicalize, they do propaganda, and they do targeting. And ISIS and white power movements are always two steps ahead. Yes, they're minor in number, but they're highly organized and passionate. And so social media now has to find the needle in the haystack and shrink the haystack. Mm. You have to deplatform people. I'll give you one quick example where deplatforming actually works, guys. I just read a tweet right before I got on the, uh, this phone that Milo Yiannopoulos, who was given a mainstream social media platform, remember him, two years mm-hmm. ago, yep. is now desperately willing to go have lunch or dinner with anyone if you pay him because he's $2 million in debt. Both him and Alex Jones have been deplatformed. If what's really going on here at some level and I have seen this, you know, throughout my life, right? If what's going on is that white men are feeling like their privilege that they grew up assuming would always be there without even thinking of it in those terms, right? If the white men are are saying, wait a minute, our privilege is being taken away from us. And I saw this in the 1970s with the women's movement. I remember the University of Michigan, just down the street from us, there was this big lawsuit about reverse discrimination that just inflamed the right. Pat Buchanan was out in Michigan, stomping all over Michigan, screaming about this. Women are taking the positions of white men. Now black people are taking the positions of white men, et cetera. That as long as white people are actually seeing their privilege be diminished. How do we speak to them about that in a way that doesn't make them crazy? How do you say, yes, your white privilege may be being diminished because we're bringing everybody else up to your level? And that's going to mean that some white people are not going to have quite as much privilege as they used to have. But it's the right thing. doesn't seem like that's going to work with the Proud Boys. You're not going to win them all. There are going to be some people who will be radicalized. They'll never evolve and change, just like those people who never evolved when schools were desegregated. But we need enough, let me just be tongue-in-cheek, moderate whites to step up and get their people and educate them and inform them and say exactly what you said, that this is better for all of our kids who will create a just, equal society, because in the absence of this, there will be nothing but warfare and division. And that's, by the way, exactly what ISIS and white supremacists want. They want to destroy us. I agree, and I've been saying this forever, that it is not people of color who are going to save us all out of this horrible situation that basically white privilege and and white supremacy have brought us. It's going to have to be white people because they're the ones who are holding the power right now to a large extent. Amazing. Thank you so much, Thomas. Yeah, Wajahat Ali. Check out his piece, The Roots of the Christchurch Massacre, over at the New York Times. Thank you. Thank you, Waj. Great having you on. Thanks. I hope we can talk again. Sure. Does your current office chair support you? I mean, if you're lucky, maybe it goes up and down, but can you sit in it for hours before it becomes uncomfortable? You know, I I broke my back skydiving back when I was 20 years old, and finding a good chair has been a lifelong struggle. The X chair has this dynamic variable lumbar support. They call it DVL. The X chair's DVL was designed to adjust to you, and every other part of the chair can be custom adjusted to fit you. That's why the X chair is equally supportive, whether you're 5'2 and 110 or 6'4 and 250. And now with the introduction of the X basic model, there's an X chair for every 
every body type and every budget. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as 30 bucks a month. Take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. X-Chair's on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair. xchairtom.com. Welcome back. Talk media for the sane among us. Let's check out our crazy alert for the day. Yeah, this is this is exceedingly crazy. I'm quoting Rush Limbaugh from his show last Friday. There's an ongoing theory that the shooter himself, he's talking about the New Zealand shooter, may in fact be a leftist who writes the manifesto and then goes out and performs the deed purposely to smear his political enemies, knowing he's going to get shot in the process. You know, you just can't immediately discount this. The left is this insane. They are this, incra- this crazy. And then if that's exactly what the guy is trying to do, then he's hit a home run because right there on Fox News, Shooter's an admitted white nationalist who hates immigrants. Right. It's all a leftist theory, Rush. This kind of propaganda actually has consequences. There was a new poll that just came out. This is apropos of our conversation with Sheriff Richard Mack. A new poll that just came out from USA Today and Suffolk University that finds that half of Americans now agree with the statement that Donald Trump is the victim of a witch hunt being run by Robert Mueller half of Americans, and that the uh, support for impeaching the president last October was at 38%. It is now at 28%. His efforts are working. And then I get this in email here. Dear Fred, President Trump issued a formal veto of the Democrats' reckless resolution because he knows that the wall is the only way to defend the security and safety of all Americans. Democrats are already planning to obstruct and override the very necessary veto. We need an all-hands-on-deck to finish the wall. We sent him a list of every patriot who donated to our official wall defense fund, and it was noticed that your name is missing. He needs you on his side, Fred. The wall will only be built with your help. Please make your triple-match contribution of any amount before 11.59 p.m. tonight to get on the next list of donors that we will hand him tonight. Yes, the king will be happy with you. Contribute $250, contribute $100, contribute $50, contribute $42. Where did they come up with $42? And then finally, this shocked me. I saw this over on Democratic Underground. The poster, CK4892, says, you know, I'm not just here on Democratic Underground. I also edit Wikipedia. And did you know that there was not even a category in Wikipedia on white nationalist terrorism until yesterday? He apparently created this. If you go to the Wikipedia and search white nationalist terrorism, it comes up. But it's just a it's basically just a very, very beginning thing. It's remarkable that all this time has passed and white nationalist terrorism is not even a uh, until today, until yesterday, it was not even a thing on Wikipedia. That is mind boggling. Adam in New Orleans, Louisiana. Hey, Adam, what's on your mind today? Um, expanding on what you were just saying, according to the uh, Anti-Defamation League, 100% correlation with extremist violence and being associated with people, nationalists and neo-Nazis, I would argue, let's go after these organizations, not the guns. I appreciate your argument, the fact that guns kill. But well, it's a very simple, it's a very simple formula, Adam. The more guns there are in any particular community, the more suicides and homicides there are, and the more accidental deaths there are. It's just a real simple math. The fact that white supremacists are now using these guns, whereas five or ten years ago it was it was white kids in high schools who were apparently taking uh, you know anti-anxiety medications. It almost doesn't matter. The, I, I think that the gun argument and the white supremacist argument need to be disentangled from each other because you know white supremacists are doing a whole lot more than just shooting people. Would you go so far as to say that using essentially propaganda and psychological warfare tactics against the American people, that should be made illegal? Because these people are living in just constant bubbles of hatred and fear, and 
that's why this seems to be blossoming. I don't really yeah. care which group, but that's what I would argue. Let's go back to the what you what you what you what confront, you Adam, when you try to do that is the First Amendment. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, that, that's what you're going to confront. And if you look at the history of right-wing cult followers, you know, the average German, I lived in Germany for a year, and, you know, I knew some of these people. The average German believed in the Hitler cult right up to, right up to the very end. And they thought that he was going to bring a thousand years of peace. And yeah, he was a flawed human being, but he's doing the right thing for our country and for the world. The Japanese, the same thing. They were willing to fly airplanes onto the deck of aircraft carriers on behalf of Tojo because it was the great way to die. The ISIS followers, these are all right-wing death cults, right? And every single one of these right-wing death cults had to be absolutely crushed before most of the cult members woke up from the cult that they had been taken into. And, you know, I was hopeful when Sam Brownback became governor of Kansas and said, I'm going to prove that all this right wing stuff, you know, Reaganomics, we're going to cut the social welfare system, we're going to radically cut taxes, and that's going to bring so much investment into this state and it's going to supercharge our economy. He said, I'm going to prove that Reaganism works. And he did it and he destroyed his own state to the point that he left with his tail between his legs. And I kept thinking, this is going to be the thing that's going to wake up red state America. The fact that you have the highest levels of eternal deaths, the highest levels of infant mortality in the United States, the lowest pay levels, the highest levels of poverty, the highest levels of heart disease, cancer, all these things that are symptoms of poverty, all, virtually all, exist exclusively in Republican-controlled states and most heavily in the Deep South. I kept thinking, you know, eventually these white people are going to wake up and say, you know, we've been had. We've been played by the billionaires who, who told us that it was the black people we had to worry about. Uh, it wasn't the black people who were letting the banksters go scot-free. It wasn't the black people who deregulated the chemical companies and the banks. I thought that they would figure it out. No, they haven't. Not only have not figured it out, but they're tripling down on this. Well, professionally, one of the things I do is, is solve problems. And you never solve the problems by going after effects. You have to go after the causes. Correct. And I think we're all rest we're all wrestling with how do we get after these causes? Well, I think and this is this is the conversation I was having with Wajahad Ali is that the biggest cause right now is that white supremacy, white privilege, in fact, white male privilege specifically, is in fact crumbling right now, right you know, right around us. And it has freaked out an entire spectrum of white America from the guy in Louisiana who's struggling with horrible poverty to the billionaire class, frankly. And I don't know quite what to do about that, other than point it out. But it's like that's you point it out and they're going like, yeah, well, that's what we're fighting against is the end of white privilege. I think that's the purpose of the fourth estate. And that's why I contribute to you, you and your organization. Okay. So, uh, well, well, thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. Uh, let's try Jules in Whittier, California, listening to KPFK. Hey, Jules, what's up? Hey, Tom. I'll try not to rant on this time, but uh, I was just thinking about the Second Amendment and how they passed it in their 18th century. We're in the 21st. That's a long time, but they had, like, blunderbusses and muskets and, right. you know, this kind of stuff. And now we've got uh, machine guns and... It's awfully vague to me, that uh, Second Amendment, don't you think? Well, it, it was passed mostly to allow the southern states to maintain their slave patrols. I mean, that was the essence oh, of it. Oh, I see. And, 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 well, and for the guys, the guys in the north who supported it, they were the guys who didn't think that there should be an, uh, a standing army during time of peace. So, you know, it, well, it other, satisfied both groups. Uh, the other thing I just want to mention was uh, I was watching some documentary where he was talking about the president of the United States and his powers, bully pulpit. It says, you know, most of the power of the president is not really his actions so much as his words. That's correct. You know, he represents America. Now, if every uh, mother and father, you know, wants to set an example, but they don't go around lying and, you know what I mean, stealing and all this. In the same way with Trump. If he's going to set an example for the entire 300 million Americans plus the, uh, the global, you know, listenership, then... Uh, you know, obviously this guy's setting a bad example. Um, I wrote the other day on uh, Facebook about how, uh, you know, we have the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not, you know, kill and all that. 
So lying is right up there with the, with the others in terms of veracity. You know what I mean? Right. I just want to bring that point across. All these Christians that are backing Trump or whatever, uh, GOP or whatever, they're all backing this guy who's going against, you know, three or two thousand years of Judeo-Christian, you know, Abrahamic religion. So I just want to bring. Yeah, that but they've got this. They've know? got this whole. This whole. Uh, he's the. He's King Cyrus. He's the Persian yeah. king who was a follower of Muhammad, who saved the Jews. Right. And, right. Uh, you know, so he's a no good guy, but he's helping us out. Yeah. So uh, you know, we'll go along with that. And th- this has become yeah. a like a, a you know part of doctrine for the for the white evangelicals. L. Ron Hubbard started Scientology, he was a cult leader, I believe. Yeah. And he was influenced by Crawley, I think it was the Englishman, he was a black yes. magic. Alistair Crawley, yes. Alistair Crawley, yeah. And so I look at Trump as similar, is that he's really into these dark arts, you know. And when you lie uh, in presidency, it's one thing to lie about, oh, I made a little mistake or in there. But like LBJ was doing, he was lying about the policy of the Vietnam War. And that's considered treason, you know. So I don't know how many um, counts against Trump it's going to take for the GOP to um, get out of their occult mode. But at this point, any clear-thinking third grader could see that this guy is, is poison. He's, he's a cancer who needs to be removed because he's metastasizing you know, even around the world, I would say. Well, and that, then that removal process is the 2020 elections if he's not impeached before that. And, and oh, I'm yeah. just, you know, the, the question in my mind is how will the hard right, particularly the armed hard right, react? Jules, thanks for the call. And I honestly don't know the answer to that question. And just the fact that I'm asking the question troubles me. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one own gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one own gold Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, boy, what a what an interesting day. And Sheriff Mack adding to all that. Um, it's it's quite remarkable. The uh, uh, George Conway continues uh, stoking the fires, by the way. This is Kellyanne Conway's husband. He tweeted out the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association's uh, Diagnostic Criteria for narcissistic personality disorder and uh, grandiose sense of self-importance, preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, and love, believes that he or she is special and unique and can only be understood by other special, unique, high-status persons, requires excessive admiration, has a sense of entitlement, interpersonally exploitative, uh, takes advantage of others to achieve his or her ends, lacks empathy, unwilling to recognize the feelings and needs of others, envious of others or believes that others are envious of him or her and shows arrogant, haughty behaviors or attitudes. This is George Conway tweeting out Donald Trump's resume. It's incredible. There was a set of tweets last week that really got me thinking. Bruce Wilson, at Bruce Wilson, was tweeting about William S. Lind. Uh, William S. Lind is the author of a novel, sort of an updated, sanitized version of the Turner Diaries, quoting from him, how mostly white Christian militia groups topple the federal government, carry out mass ethnic cleansing, and force black families into slavery. The war that he describes, the Civil War, begins in 2020. Lind met personally with Donald Trump in 2016, gave him his book, and talked about uniting militia groups with county sheriffs, which takes us to the whole county sheriffs thing. And in fact, uh, in Bruce Wilson's tweet storm, he says, Trump appears to envision mass right-wing violence against the left. Two days ago, he told Breitbart, 
it's so terrible what's happening. You know, the left plays a tougher game. It's very funny. I think that the people on the right are tougher. I can tell you I have the support of the police, the support of the military, the support of the bikers for Trump. I have the tough people, but they don't play it tough until they get to a certain point, and then it would be very, very bad. Which raises the question, and one that I'm very curious about, is, you know, how this all might play out if Donald Trump loses the election and enough people in America believe, or there's any evidence, in fact, that the election was stolen from him. On the line with us is Sheriff Richard Mack, the founder of the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association. That's CSPOA.org that Bruce Wilson mentioned. He said they're connected to Donald Trump. The board of directors of Oath Keepers Movement, OathKeepers.org, and the former sheriff of Graham County, Arizona. Sheriff Mack, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks, Tom. Appreciate being back with you. It's always fascinating talking to you, sir. Um, <laughs> I, I am, uh, and your Twitter handle, by the way, if people want to reach you, is Sheriff Mack, M-A-C-K. Sheriff Mack, if, if this scenario were to play out, if Donald Trump were to lose the 2020 election, right at this moment, about half of Americans, there was just this survey published this morning suggesting that about half of Americans are starting to doubt Robert Mueller's uh, truthfulness, and he hasn't even issued his report. This is you know, the consequence of this unrelenting attacks on Mueller coming out of the White House, out of Fox News, out of right-wing radio. If that echo chamber, that giant right-wing echo chamber, was able to convince a lot of Americans that the election had been stolen from Donald Trump. And Donald Trump reached out and said, hey, you know, military, police, bikers, sheriffs, come surround the White House, help me, protect me. What do you think would happen? Well, you know, when I ran for office, one of the rules was never to talk about uh, hypotheticals. But seeing how I'm not running for office, why not? And this whole narrative began from a convicted liar that the Democrats used to hate, but now they love him because he's turned on Trump. And that's Cohen, uh, who has already been convicted of lying to Congress, who is going to prison for lying. And now we all want to take him so seriously, like everything he says is true. And yet that still ignores the hypocrisy and the violence of the left, who during the past few years have been extremely violent at uh, Cal Berkeley when a right-wing person wanted to speak. Of course, they go and burn the buildings down and, and have riots in the streets, very similar to Ferguson and Baltimore and other places where it went crazy, and also ignores the words and warnings from one Hillary Clinton, who says, we will not be civil unless you agree with us and unless you're on our side and do what we say. So I think that there's rhetoric from both sides that has been extremely out of line, but I will tell you that you're speaking to the most peaceful man on the face of the planet, and that is me. I never advocated violence, even though the SPLC has lied about me and even calls me a domestic terrorist. There could be nothing further from the truth. I have never committed any act of violence, even the whole time I was a police officer, whole time I was sheriff. I absolutely abhor violence, and I abhor what's going on between the Democrats and Republicans, and they're both at fault. I really detest the comments made by President Trump regarding the news media and that there should be an investigation on them. Obama was also very anti-media in some regards, and even arrested Cheryl Atkinson. And so he doesn't have a good record on that. Hillary does not have so, a good record on So, Sheriff Mack, we're, we're kind of wandering far afield here. Yeah. Well, my, my question essentially yes. was, you know, Donald Trump seems to be of the opinion that if he doesn't get his way, essentially, that if he, that, you know, if, if he loses the election in 2020 or if he's impeached right. for that matter, that I, he may be able to get people a, to come to the White House and defend him. You're saying that no you would way. not join that crowd uh, from what I understand. But do you think I that not, I would not join it? Right. Uh, do you think that others would? I mean, we, the last conversation we had was a couple of weeks ago where we found that m- the majority of sheriffs in the state of Washington, like four fifths of the sheriffs in the state of Washington, many of the members of your organization, CSPOA.org, uh, are refusing to enforce gun control laws in that state that were passed by the people of the state of Washington. But I don't understand why you don't believe in that sort of civil disobedience. Because first of all, I'm fine with civil disobedience, Sheriff. I'm I'm just all I'm. I'm not. I'm not trying to relitigate that. You know, we already had that conversation. What I'm saying is that we see sheriffs right now who are saying, "I'm not going to do what the law says," 
And so, you know, but if Trump are. were to, if they Trump, following the law, you act like the, the Bill of Rights is not the supreme law of the okay, land. OK, well, if the, if the election was stolen from Donald Trump and to the satisfaction of the, of the majority of Republicans, you could absolutely well, believe that it was stolen. Elections, what would happen? Elections have been stolen in America before. I mean, Hayes got elected because they formed the committee and because there was one more Republican. That's the reason he won. And that's way back at the beginning of the of, of the 20th century, and, and you know uh, LBJ stole the Senate race in Texas, and these things have happened before. It does not mean that the rest of us are going to act like a bunch of lunatics and and create violence. Nixon uh, pitted the CIA against the FBI. Nixon actually made some overtures that he was going to use the military to defend his position. Uh, and make sure he stayed in. And after the impeachment thing came up, he decided to do the right thing and leave. So these things are not new, and certainly Trump did not make any of this up. But, uh, you know, speculation about that happening, I do not believe the sheriffs would rise up and defend him, although he's had some good connections with sheriffs in this country. I've been trying for two years to meet with Trump to, as you'll recall, issue a pardon for... Uh, Sam Gerard, and you mm -hmm. even said on your show at the very end, free Sam Gerard. Well, the reason he's there is because Obama administration went after people like this who should not be in prison, and prison reform should start with not having innocent people in prison, especially an Amish farmer uh, from uh, Kentucky. So, and and, and, and and Donald Trump already pardoned uh, Dwight and Steve Hammond, this, the, the, the guys who well, took I, over I the wildlife refuge. Well, I'd love to see that. Yeah, refuge. I'd love to see that. They were innocent, and they were on our list. And Cox and Kettler from Kansas are also innocent, but there's so many people that are in prison that should not be in America. And, and I also don't believe in the drug war and putting potheads in prison, which we've done extensively. And, and let's face it, the drug war has been an excuse to create a police state in America. And I'm against all of that, and I have been for a long time. Yeah. That's why I say I am a peaceful person. I want peace in this country. And, and Trump needs to scale back on the rhetoric, especially aiming an investigation at any of the media. I don't care how bad. I don't like CNN, but I'll still be interviewed by CNN. I don't trust a lot of the media, but uh, I still do not believe the president should be getting involved with that. I'm pleased that you and I, Sheriff Matt, can have reasonable conversations about these things. And, and I'm, I'm also pleased to hear that you don't think that the members of, the, of this organization, CSPOA, no, no. would rise up if Donald Trump called them to. Uh, that's fascinating. Sheriff Mack, Sheriff Richard Mack, thank you for dropping by today. Anytime, Tom. See you soon. Good talking with you. And you can tweet Sheriff Mack at Sheriff Mack. Stealing data from unsuspecting people on public Wi-Fi is one of the simplest ways for hackers to make money. When you leave your internet connection unencrypted, you might as well be writing your passwords and credit card numbers on a huge billboard for the rest of the world to see. That's why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Turning on ExpressVPN protection takes only one click. Using ExpressVPN, I can safely surf even on public Wi-Fi without having my personal data stolen. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com Tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom to learn more. In the Tom Hartman Book Club today, our book is by France Fanon, and it's The Wretched of the Earth. This is from the chapter On National Culture on page 145. It sort of reads like uh, Thomas Paine, actually. Each generation must discover its mission, fulfill it, or betray it in relative opacity. In the underdeveloped countries, preceding generations have simultaneously resisted the insidious agenda of colonialism and paved the way for the emergence of the current struggles. Now that we are in the heat of combat, we must shed the habit of decrying the efforts of our forefathers or feigning incomprehension at their silence or passiveness. They fought as best they could with the weapons they possessed at the time. And if their struggle did not reverberate throughout the international arena, the reason should be attributed not so much to a lack of heroism, but to a fundamentally different international situation. 
More than one colonized subject had to say, we've had enough. More than one tribe had to rebel. More than one peasant revolt had to be quelled. More than one demonstration had to be repressed for us to stand firm, certain of our victory. For those of us who are determined to break the back of colonialism, our historic mission is to authorize every revolt, every desperate act, and every attack aborted or drowned in blood. In this chapter, we'll analyze the fundamental issue of the legitimate claim to a nation. The political party that mobilizes the people, however, is little concerned with this issue of legitimacy. Political parties are concerned solely with daily reality. And it is in the name of this reality, in the name of this immediacy, which influences the present and future of men and women, that they make their call to action. The political party may very well speak of the nation in emotional terms, but it is primarily interested in getting the people who are listening to understand that they must join in the struggle if they quite simply want to exist. We now know that in the first phase of the national struggle, colonialism attempts to diffuse nationalist demands by manipulating economic doctrine. At the first sign of a dispute, colonialism feigns comprehension by acknowledging with ostentatious humility that the territory is suffering from serious underdevelopment that requires major social and economic reforms. And it is true that certain spectacular measures, such as the opening of work sites for the unemployed here and there, delay the formation of a national consciousness by a few years. But sooner or later, colonialism realizes it is incapable of achieving a program of socioeconomic reforms that would satisfy the aspirations of the colonized masses. Even when it comes to filling their bellies, colonialism proves to be inherently powerless. The colonial state very quickly discovers that any attempt to disarm the national parties at a purely economic level would be tantamount to practicing in the colonies what it did not want to do in its own territory. And it is no coincidence that today the doctrine of Cartierism is on the rise just about everywhere. Cartier, Cartier's bitter disillusionment with France's stubborn determination to retain ties with people it will have to feed, whereas so many French citizens are in dire straits, reflects colonialism's inability to transform itself into a nonpartisan aid program. Hence, once again, no need to waste time repeating, better to go hungry with dig dignity than to, fill one, to eat one's fill in slavery. On the contrary, we must per persuade ourselves that colonialism is incapable of procuring for colonized people the material conditions likely to make them forget their quest for dignity. Once colonialism is understood where its social reform tactics would lead it, back come the old reflexes of adding police reinforcements, dispatching troops, and establishing a regime of terror better suited to its interests and its psychology. Within the political parties, or rather parallel to them, we find the cultured class of colonized intellectuals. The recognition of a national culture and its right to exist represent their favorite stomping ground. Whereas the politicians integrate their action in the present, the intellectuals place themselves in the context of history. Faced with the colonized intellectuals debunking of the colonist theory of a pre-colonial barbarism, colonialism's response is mute. It is especially mute since the ideas put forward by the young colonized intelligentsia are widely accepted by metropolitan specialists. It is in fact now commonly recognized that for several decades, numerous European researchers have widely rehabilitated African, Mexican, and Peruvian civilizations. Some have been surprised by the passive passion excuse me, invested by the colonized intellectuals in their defense of a national culture. But those who consider this passion exaggerated are strangely apt to forget that their psyches and their egos are conveniently safeguarded by the French or German culture whose worth has been proven and which has gone unchallenged. I concede the fact that the actual existence of an Aztec civilization has done little to change the diet of today's Mexican peasant. I concede that whatever proof there is of a once highly Songhai, of the once mighty Songhai civilization does not change the fact that the Songhais today are undernourished, illiterate, abandoned to the skies and water, with a blank mind and glazed eyes. But as we have said on several occasions, this passionate quest for a national culture prior to the colonial era can be justified by the colonized intellectual's shared interest in stepping back and taking a hard look at the Western culture in which they risk becoming ensnared. Fully aware that they're in the process of losing themselves and consequently of being lost to their people, these men work away with raging heart and furious mind to renew contact with their people's oldest inner essence the furthest removed from colonial times. Let us delve deeper. Perhaps this passion and this rage are nurtured, or at least guided, by the secret hope of discovering, beyond the present wretchedness, beyond the self-hatred, something that redeems us. The Wretched of the Earth by France Fanon. 
Welcome back. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and loving what you do. A new book by Ellen Ratner on the line with us is the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News. Joining us from New York, Luke Vargas. Luke, the uh, British government uh, is facing a Wednesday deadline to agree to a Brexit deal. What, you know, increasingly, it seems like what I'm hearing from the, the European leaders is, you know, Theresa May, now she just got blown up by the Speaker of the House saying, no, you can't yep. have another yep. another vote on your uh, kind of, you know, uh, offer, right, to Europe. It's got to be substantially different. And so she's going to Europe saying, we want an extension. A couple of pieces in the Financial Times this morning about how the European leaders are saying, an extension for what? You're not offering anything new. You know, take it or leave it. It's looking to me like a hard Brexit is coming. Yeah, on a lot of fronts, Theresa May's sort of hope, and there were reasons to suspect it, it might sort of tip in her favor at the last minute, have come crashing down, though. I mean, you, so first, as you mentioned, you've got the Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burkow, basically saying, you can't just present now for a third time the very same Brexit deal that you proposed back in December. And he and quoted a rule from January. 1604. Right. I mean, it, it has an old precedent, but that doesn't mean it's an... No, I mean, my point rule. is this I mean, is a rule that has been followed since 1604. Yeah, I think there is some something to be said for the fact that he maybe could have brought that up several weeks ago when yeah. she polished off the same, you know, bill for a second time. And that would have at least sort of... I kind of sympathize with him because clearly the actions of May's, you know, leadership here reflects a sort of lack of understanding of the process. At the same time... If Burkow was really trying to avoid a, a crisis, which we're now in, he probably could have, you know, made this statement several weeks ago, and yeah. and thus. Well, there's another there's another conspiracy theory floating around here, which is that he stopped her because he knew she was going to lose the vote, and he's on her side, and this was a way of avoiding humiliation for her and losing the vote. It's hard to see how she doesn't emerge humiliated from this. Her own spokesperson within yeah. the last hour or so agreed with the with the premise of a question saying that now Britain is in a political crisis. I think, yeah, and now you point out she's being blocked at the European Union level. The uh, Elysee Palace in, in France uh, has now put out a statement in the last few hours saying that, look, we're an extension is not a given. You need to show us that it's not just a delaying tactic and right. you're not just going to procrastinate for the full duration of a delay. I will point out, and this is probably a relatively low risk, but it is worth thinking about. And I just saw The Brink, the film about Steve Bannon's efforts last night uh, to go around Europe and sort of cultivate far-right populist hmm. movements, that there has been a push by people like Nigel Farage and other members of the European Union Parliament from Britain who are in favor of Brexit to try and appeal to Poland and Italy in particular to see that if on Thursday, when the European Union would need to vote and will need a unanimity in order to agree to a possible Brexit extension, that if Poland or Italy, you know, Matteo Salvini's government in Italy is very much aligned with the Brexiteers, if they block that, then it actually almost ensures a no-deal Brexit. Does, does then, the EU work on, on consensus as opposed to majority? On this issue, it will. Uh, and, huh. and up until now, that's it. been working. I mean, even though you, you do have these sort of far-right governments coming into power whose interests you know, the, the, there are these sort of common interests now across a, a, a diverse block of countries. There has been a lot of consensus on Brexit issues so far. So I think that's a relatively low risk, but it's something to think about that. You know, you have yeah. a, a possible scenario here where Italy sort of tries to defend the will of the British Brexiteers by blocking any effort to extend Brexit and work out a better arrangement. Well, the hard, the hard Brexit is in a week and a half, isn't it? It would be. And mind you, there was a vote last week that basically said, by a narrow margin, no deal Brexit is unacceptable, but it's non-binding. It, that's right. not law. And it is, it's possible to see a scenario in which the likelihood of that has actually increased in the past few days. So we'll, right. be, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens tomorrow. We don't know how long Theresa May will ask for a Brexit extension. But mind you, if it's going to be more than several months... She will be forced to hold European Union elections in the United Kingdom, which is sort of insult to injury, and will cost the country uh, upwards of $100 million to put on. And so, I, you know, it, she's going to suffer embarrassment no matter how this goes. Amazing. Meanwhile, Mike Pompeo held a press conference, and the only press he invited were faith-based media organizations. Now the question is being asked, how many of them were Muslim? And apparently the answer is zero. What the hell's going on well, here? Yeah, a great way for the State Department to not have to answer that question is to just say, hey, we're not just going to release the list of call participants. And this is very worrisome. I and mean, we've seen 
a bunch of sort of suspicious things, at least in, by my account, from the State Department and particularly from Mike Pompeo recently, where he's been doing these American press tours. He spent like the last few days in Nebraska and Oklahoma and Texas, just, you know, calling into local radio shows, talking about barbecue, answering questions about whether he's going to run for president again. And it was all paid for by the State Department and bundled up as public diplomacy, right? He's going to Texas to explain the Middle East peace process to people, to talk about the Iran deal, to educate new audiences about about American diplomacy, it looks a little bit like, you know, sort of laying the groundwork for a presidential campaign in the future, and then add to it the fact that this press call yesterday, in a very unprecedented fashion, was reserved for members of the religious press. Uh, And we're not going to learn anything that was said, nor who was participating in that. That's pretty worrisome. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd be astonished if there was a Muslim or a Hindu or a Jain or a, I mean, any, any, it's incredible. We, and we might see some lawsuits here, so we'll, we'll, let's, the story's not over. Well, that's good to know. Luke Vargas, thank you, Luke. Thank you. Luke Vargas with Talk Media News. We'll be back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Mark in uh, Janesville, Wisconsin. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind? Well, you know, I keep reading your book, The Crash 2016. Yeah. And, and I mean, right now, the Republicans want to go after Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. I mean, just if it ever does get to that point, are the Democrats going to be sheep going to the slaughter? Well, I hope That's not, Mark. Only- and, and I'm not opposed to people arming themselves for self-defense. Where it gets squirrely is when people start building arsenals, basically. And uh, it's only a small percentage of gun owners who have more than you know, one or two guns or more than five guns, I think is the threshold, where you get, kind of get into crazy land. And I just hope and pray, I mean, literally, that we never reach that point in this country again. We've been there once in a big way with the Civil War and arguably even with the Revolutionary War, where a lot of families were at war with each other over the revolution. Thanks so much for being with us. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there, get active tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 